Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlewood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. The Box of Oddities is now a CastBox original. CastBox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can find all your favorite podcasts. You can listen to The Box of Oddities wherever you access your podcasts. But we hope you give CastBox a try. The curator is greatly pleased with CastBox. We think it's the best. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. Now, I don't know if we want to stay there. I don't know. Maybe a different one. Hi, everybody. It's uh, it's Cat and Jethro. We're we're just we're we're planning. We're working on our our trip to Nashville, and uh, Zany's Comedy Nightclub is putting us up in their condo the night of the show. But we wanted to stay a few extra days, obviously, and explore the great city of Nashville. So we were looking at Airbnb outlets. Oh man, some amazing places, some really gorgeous spots, and a lot of great uh, options for sure. Uh, this one place, though, <laughs> I. I um, have never seen a place advertised with a quote unquote fully stocked bedroom. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Well, but there is a photo of uh, a sex swing. Yeah, there's a swing. There's a very, this is uh, really kind of catering to a very specific clientele. Yeah. <laughs> the walls are padded. Um, no carpet at all. And it looks like the sheets are rubber. So just uh, yeah. only hardwood in this building, oh, right? Oh, hey. <laughs> oh. Yeah. I think we'll keep looking. <laughs> if you want to uh, to come to the show, or if you want information on how to, you know, Airbnb that particular place. <laughs> Actually, I can't help you with that. But uh, if you would like to join us for the Nashville show, our first live show, it's February 27th, Zany's Comedy Nightclub. Get your tickets at theboxofoddities.com. We're super jazzed, not only because it is our first live show, but because it will be February and uh, we live in Maine. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And I posted a picture today of 
uh, our cozy setup with blankets and my <laughs> my coffee and all that business. And I was like, yep, it's officially snow season. Yeah. So first thing we do very first snow day of the uh, of the season is we we build a blanket fort. It's. <laughs> kind of silly but it's one of our weird traditions it's 100 percent necessary so i believe you go first this episode oh my goodness yeah okay well i feel like um no matter who goes first i'm never prepared for that answer that's okay um so okay um i actually emailed myself my information and i'm having to scroll through all the emails from pet finder now that i've been <laughs> looking for a cat uh-huh But, uh, okay, here we go. Are you familiar with the Voynich Manuscript? Oh, my God. I almost did that one. No. Yeah. Really? I almost did that one today. No, you did not. I did. (laughs) It was was in my queue, and I, I, well, maybe I could do that today. Uh, That's too much research. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm thrilled to do it, and here's why. I knew a little bit about this, like I'd heard of it. Um, but I, I hadn't really read into it. So mm-hmm. it was really interesting to kind of delve into the history of it. And uh, so I thought, hey, let's do that together. Um, currently, the Voynich Manuscript is stored in a Yale University vault. And it's an illustrated codex. It's handwritten. It's believed to have been written six centuries ago. But it's in an unknown or a coded language. Written in Central Europe in the 15th century, the book is slightly larger than a modern paperback, and it contains 246 fragile pages of bound vellum or... uh, animal skin, basically, that you can write on. Mm -hmm. Uh, It does not include an index, but it likely had foldouts that have long gone missing. There are gaps in page numbers, and evidence does show that it could have been rebound at some point, so the order of the pages might actually be different than originally. Earliest information about the existence of this book comes from a letter that was inside uh, the covers of the manuscript, and it was written in either 1665 or or 1666. So some of the pages are missing. The text is written from left to right, and most of the pages have illustrations or diagrams. The ink is colored. It's a bit crude, um, and it's mostly in black, green, blue, or red. Some pages are foldable sheets, so um, they're like big diagrams or big drawings. The Manuscripts been studied by many professionals, uh, cryptographers, including American and British codebreakers from both World War I and World War II. It's written in an elegant, looping script. Uh, the renderings show doodles of castles and dragons, plants, planets, naked figures, uh, symbols of astronomy, all detailed in green, brown, yellow, blue, and red ink. There's a particularly curious passage which shows dozens of naked women bathing in pools of interconnected green liquid. Uh, kind wow. Of yeah. Yeah. Sounds um, like that ad for the Airbnb place that we were just looking at. A little bit at. like that, for yeah. sure. <laughs> So much of the early history of the book is unknown. Uh, Text and illustrations are characteristically European. And in 2009, University of Arizona research performed radiocarbon dating on the vellum and dated it between 1404 and 1438. That's incredible. I I had not heard that part of it. 
As far as we know, the first owner was George Barish, an obscure alchemist from Prague. His 1639 letter to a, another scientist is the earliest confirmed mention of the manuscript that's been found to date. Um, after that point, no records for the book exist that we know of for about 200 years. Then in 1903, the Society of Jesus was short of money and decided to sell some of its holdings uh, to the Vatican Library. The sale took place in 1912, but not all of the manuscripts listed for sale ended up going to the Vatican. And that's when Wilfred Voynich acquired 30 of the manuscripts, one of which is now the Voynich Manuscript. I'm not sure that I'm pronouncing that correctly. Manuscript? No, you got it. He spent the next seven years attempting to interest scholars in figuring out what this book was, deciphering this script, and um, determining the origins of it. In 1930, the manuscript was inherited uh, by his widow, and uh, she died in 1960. She left the manuscript to her close friend, who uh, was unable to find a buyer and ended up donating it to the university uh, in 1969, where it's cataloged as MS-408. In case you want to go and sure. check it out. There are a lot of different theories about what this, not what it's about or why it was written, but how it's written and why we can't understand it. Okay. So there is a letter-based cipher theory. And according to that, it contains a meaningful text in some European language that was intentionally rendered obscure by creating a um, alternate alphabet that corresponds to a cipher um, so that if you had the code, mm -hmm. you'd be able to, you know, A equals G and sure. B equals yeah. H and, you know, that kind of thing. According to the code book cipher theory, the Voynich manuscript words would actually be codes that were to be looked up in a dictionary or a code book. Uh, the main evidence for that theory is that the internal structure and length distribution of many of the words are similar to those of Roman numerals, which at the time could have been a natural choice for codes. In 1943, Joseph Martin Feely claimed that the manuscript was a scientific diary written in shorthand. So according to uh, a, some Spanish name, <laughs> it was like, um, like Latin, but in abbreviated forms that other scholars didn't approve of. So oh, kind of a yeah. sub-Latin sub, sub sub abbreviation language. When, when I looked at it, and, and I certainly didn't pore over the manuscripts, just kind of you know, flipping through some uh, some diagrams that I had seen a couple of years ago. Now that you mention it, it does kind of look like Latin as far as the way that it's uh, it's structured. Not that I know how to read Latin or understand it. It just, to me, I looked at it and went, oh, that's Latin. Right. It does seem like... I think maybe also so often when we see things written in this style, um, it is Latin. So our brain goes, oh, it must be. Must be. You know. Yeah. Murp, murp, murp. Murp, murp, murp. You know. Stenography. So there's actually a theory that holds that the text of the manuscript is mostly meaningless, but contains meaningful information hidden in inconspicuous details. So like the second letter of every word or the number of each letters in each line holds the meaning, not the words themselves. 
But the unusual features of the manuscript text, such as doubled and tripled words and the suspicious contents of its illustrations, support to some that the manuscript is in fact a hoax. In other words, that um, no one is able to extract meaning from the book because there is no meaning and it was made as a funsies kind of thing. In the 1400s. Right. I mean, they had a sense of humor. They knew it was up. I don't know. Well, I mean, these drawings, everyone's boobs are so pert and uh, perky. It feels made up to me. (laughs) I I don't know that I've ever seen boobs that large, that 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 perky, that are that perky. Um, That are real anyway. Based on the illustrations, though, scholars believe that the book is divided into six sections. Herbal, astronomical, biological, cosmological, pharmaceutical, and recipes. And it's possible that the manuscript is of magical or scientific nature. Like, Like alchemy kind of thing. That's right. Now, there are those that believe that this was a woman's health diary written for one specific woman like um there was an alchemist who wrote this for this chick and that this was for her to keep herself healthy like this is how you will live your life in a in a healthy womanly kind of way um hence the big boobs right because it was probably written by a guy and he was probably into her and like, see how perky they are? That's how I see you, baby. Right? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe that is a um, a how to pick up chicks book from the 1400s. It's, yeah, it's, it sounds likely. <laughs> <laughs> but um, scientists recently put the book's language, let's say, through artificial intelligence, like Google Translate, basically, and were able to find some things that did make way to almost sentences. After researchers corrected some spelling errors, which kind of makes me think like, well, maybe then you, you know, you're just making words that you see as being words. Sure. It's not necessarily a spelling error. They, they found this sentence. She made recommendations to the priest, man of the house and me and people. So you can kind of see how that sort Mm. of makes sense, Mm -hmm. but you can also see how someone might force a sentence if they were looking for one massage it massage it exactly Mm. so using statistics this kind of works but really there are some some pretty serious problems with that study and for the most part they say that this is not the solution that people thought it was at first. And there have been several times where people thought they'd figured it out. Like, haha, this is this is the answer. And it turns out that that's, that's in no way the answer and that we still don't have an answer and it will probably never be solved. The end. What, what, what if it is, because you mentioned recipes, mm-hmm. what if it is just a cookbook and it's, you know, somebody was very concerned about their secrets of their cooking techniques being um, released. And so that's all that is. Like the Colonel? Yeah, 11 Secret Herbs and Spices. Yeah, he's not letting you in. No. And he did have a thing for boobies. Did he? I don't know. He looks like the type that would have. I don't know. He was always handing out breasts. (laughs) Right? And thighs. And legs. Yep. That's what he was doing. Uh, maybe maybe the Voinovich manuscript 
is um, maybe it's a porn novel. Could be. Maybe it's just really, really saucy, or at least for the time, and they felt the need to disguise it. Okay. If you decipher the title, it's called Uncle's New Nurse. It's like one of those Mad Libs that inevitably turns dirty. Yes, exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> We solved it. <laughs> yep. Ha ha. Ha You're welcome. We were going to call this segment Kevin, but it didn't do well in focus groups. So now we call it That Thing in the Middle. Here's some creepy facts about the Ouija board. Or Ouija board. Or Ouija board. Ouija. Whichever you prefer. Number five, when it was first created, the Ouija board, or Ouija board, I'm just going to call it Ouija. Go ahead. Got its name after asking what it wanted to be called. Oh. It named itself. I did not know this. That is the story. That's fascinating. Number four, the creator of the Ouija board, Elijah Bond, never received proper recognition for creating it. However, in 2007, a collector and fan, Robert Murch, erected a Ouija board tombstone and put it over Bond's unmarked grave. Proprietor William Fold gained exclusive rights to manufacture and sell the Ouija board and amassed a grand fortune on their sales. The Ouija board told him to construct a new building claiming to, quote, prepare for big business. While he was overseeing its construction in Baltimore, he plummeted to his death in a freak accident. Number two, the pointer with a magnifying glass in the middle is called a planchette, and that word has roots in Victorian seances. And number one, Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, claimed that his 12-step program was guided by spirits and the Ouija board, specifically the spirit of a 15th century monk named Boniface. Was he an alcoholic? Boniface? Yeah. I don't know. Weird. But he was a friend of Bill W. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. We're so glad you're listening to The Box of Oddities. And if you do enjoy The Box of Oddities, we're guessing you probably enjoy hearing true crime stories. Or stories of mysteries and puzzles. I love puzzles. And I also love gift giving. See how I'm tying this in together? Yes. What are we talking about? We're talking about Haunt a Killer. Your new favorite obsession. It's a monthly subscription where you become a detective immersed in a murder mystery. It's like you're being submerged into this murder mystery and you find out if you have what it takes to get inside the mind of a serial killer and solve the crime. One of the things that I was really impressed with is the quality of the items that I was sent to solve these crimes. There's some paperwork, some reading to do, but there are also these clues that are like a pocket watch. And the pocket watch is of beautiful quality. It's really nice. Yeah, I used it in our photo shoot. Right. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just, I was really impressed at the quality and the time and the attention to detail yeah. in this product. It's so interactive and convincing that it looks and feels real. The whole experience feels real. And you can play solo if you're like me and you don't play well with others. Uh, you can take it to a date night um, if you do that kind of thing or game night with a bunch of friends so you can exchange theories. Over 60,000 people have joined Hunt a Killer's online community. They have over a thousand five-star customer reviews. This is 
an incredibly well put together game. We just love it. And right now, just for our listeners, you can go to huntakiller.com slash box for 10% off your first box. Now, they only accept 200 members per day. It's kind of exclusive. So hurry, take advantage of this offer. That's huntakiller.com slash box for 10% off your first box. Huntakiller.com slash box. Solve a crime and support the box of oddities. We all have stuff. I have too much of it, actually, and not enough places to keep it in. Oh, you're talking about emotional stuff. Yeah. I still have not enough place to keep all my emotional stuff. (laughs) There's all this baggage. Yes. And there's big stuff, and then there's the daily stuff. For me, daily stuff was getting to be a big thing. It was like all of the little things that I'd always been able to kind of manage on my own were just kind of culminating into one giant storm cloud of big Mm, thing. Sure. It was very strange. I found one of the best things that I could use to help improve my state of being was breathing. Just the simple act of measured breathing and being aware of my breath. And the Calm app helps me so much with that. You know, even if you're not into meditating, it's so much more than that. It could be just, as you mentioned, uh, controlled breathing. And we've mentioned before the sleep stories, how much we love the sleep stories. It's like a grown-up bedtime story where you, you crawl into bed, you tuck yourself in, and then you turn on the Calm app and it tells you a story until you fall asleep. I want to know what the ends of these stories are like. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I always fall asleep way too soon. But also in the sleep section, they've got uh, music. They've got nature sounds. Yeah, some really cool soundscapes that involve a little bit of music, but also those nature sounds. They kind of all mix together for one beautiful melty song for you for the melting. It's calm. And that's why we're excited to partner with Calm. Calm is the number one app for sleep, meditation, and relaxation. It was even named Apple's 2017 app of the year. It's like a toolbox to help you live a happier, healthier, more mindful life. Now, again, it's great for meditation, but you don't have to meditate to really appreciate the calming effects of the Calm app. But if you want to get into meditation, they have um, some really cool ways to help guide you into it. So you can get good at meditation. I believe in you. And so does the Calm app. For a limited time, the Box of Oddities listeners get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash box. It includes unlimited access to all of Calm's amazing content. Get started today at calm.com slash box. That's calm.com slash box. C-A-L-M dot com slash box. Not only do you get the 25% off the Calm Premium subscription, but you support the Box of Oddities. <sighs> you got your box. You got your oddities. Talk about your perfect storm. This is the Box of Oddities. So in 1957, in England, two sisters were holding hands and walking to church. When a car came out of nowhere, careened out of nowhere, and struck them and killed them both. Hmm. In 1958, the parents of those sisters gave birth to twins. They're known as the Pollock twins, and many feel are one of the best cases for proof of the theory of reincarnation. Many say that the Pollock twins are 
the reincarnation of the two sisters that were struck and killed that Sunday morning one year earlier. Interesting. On the morning of May 7th, they were struck by a car and killed while walking to church with a friend. The driver was a, a local woman, and she was, I guess, despondent because she had lost custody of her children. Oh, my goodness. And uh, was trying to kill herself and had taken what she thought was a lethal dose of aspirin and phenobarbital. And witnesses said And was that, just tootling around town yeah. until she died? Yeah, I guess so. Come on. And uh, witnesses said that uh, they they could see the car just coming out of nowhere, and it was she was driving erratically, and it mm-hmm. was all swerving all over the place. The children had no way of, of getting out of the way because they were walking next to a stone wall. The car hit them and threw them into the air like, quote, cricket balls. They were both killed instantly. Did their friends survive? Yeah, apparently their friends did survive. That's good. Just going to take a moment and say if you're despondent and decide that you want to take your own life, do it in such a way that doesn't take out other people as well. Yeah, we've had this discussion before, like the Cecil Hotel. It's uh, dinkish. Episode where somebody tried to kill themselves by throwing themselves off the uh, top of the hotel and landed on pedestrians. Right. Yeah, that's just bad form. Yeah, it's very rude. The Pollock twins is what we're talking about. John Pollock, the father, was born in Bristol in 1920. His wife, Florence, grew up as a a member of the Salvation Army, became Catholic on marrying John. They both were very devout. Uh, John believed very strongly in reincarnation. His wife did not. They gave birth to Joanna Pollock, who was born in 1946. In 1951, her younger sister, Jacqueline, was born. Now, the the two little girls were inseparable, even though there was a a pretty good age difference there. Five years, yeah. Yeah, Joanna, the older, acted kind of motherly toward young Jacqueline. Jacqueline kind of liked that. They got along famously. Their parents were involved in a milk delivery business, so the girls were mostly raised by their maternal grandmother. They were inseparable. Joanna liked wearing costumes and acting in plays that she made up. Uh, She was a very generous child. Both girls seemed to have a premonition that they would never grow up. Joanna often said, I will never grow to be a lady. At age three, Jacqueline fell into a bucket, which was an accident that caused a small gash on her forehead over her right eye Mm -hmm. near the root of her nose. It formed a permanent scar, was slightly depressed, and it was especially visible in cold weather. Jacqueline also had a roundish dark birthmark on her left on the left side of her wrist. After the girl's death and their mother had become pregnant, the doctor was was telling them that that they were going to have a single child. Mm-hmm. But uh, John, the father, said he had a premonition that they were going to be twins and that they were going to be the reincarnated spirits of their dead daughters. Okay. He became obsessed with this idea. Uh, his wife, Florence, didn't care for it much sure. and kept saying, no, that's that's not, not the case. But he had this vision that the uh, deceased souls of his daughters were hovering over the house waiting for the twins to be born. So he would go up into the attic so he could be closer to them. Aww. The doctor kept saying, no, it's um, it's not the case it's just one single child so the couple gives birth to two healthy twins they named the twins jillian and jennifer jennifer had a birthmark that looked exactly like jacqueline's scar the exact same place the exact same shape on her face yeah the scar that she got when she fell into the bucket Mm -hmm. 
And she had a second birthmark in the same place as Jacqueline's birthmark on her left wrist. Identical. Now, the strange thing is that her twin did not have any of these birthmarks. So they did, the doctor did blood tests. They arranged to determine the zygosity and found that they were both monozygotic. In other words, they both came from the exact same egg. Mm -hmm. So it, they should have been identical birthmarks. Everything should have been identical, but they were not. Mm -hmm. And that does not make any sense scientifically. That's interesting, but also keep in mind it was 1950s science. That's true. 1958. So John was convinced that these were these twins were the reincarnated spirits of his his dead daughters from right. before. Coincidences started to happen. For example, at one point, uh, the girls went up into the attic. This was when they were older. Mm -hmm. Not right after they were born. <laughs> no, and I, I just realized how stupid that sounded right after I said that. They they crawled out of the birth hole right. and scrambled up the attic steps. If that happened. I think I would take a lethal dose of aspirin. Sure, yeah. Especially if it made that noise. Yep. Ugh. So several years later, uh, they, they went up into the attic and they found a box of the dead daughter's toys. Mm -hmm. And they immediately seemed to recognize the toys. And they were passing them out to each other. Oh, here's your thing. And here's your doll. And they got everything correct. Mm -hmm. And one of them said there was a little toy washing machine that they had got for Christmas. One of them said, oh, there's my toy ringer that Santa Claus brought me. They knew that that was her toy. She knew it was her toy. Mm -hmm. She knew it had come from Santa as a Christmas present beforehand. Other examples would be they visited the town that they once lived in. Mm -hmm. This was a town that the twins had never been in, but the dead daughters had lived there. And as they were driving through it, the twins said, oh, there's the school we used to go to. Can we go around the corner and play on the swings? And around the corner, there were swings and right. they had never seen them before. Oftentimes, the parents would interrupt them during play and they would be recreating dying in a car accident. That makes me think of, uh, we have uh, a little girl in our family who yesterday I overheard singing a song that went a little something like, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> she has perfect pitch. Uh, what you doing there? Okay. One time, Florence, the mother, came across Jillian cradling Jennifer's head and rocking her back and forth, saying, the blood is coming out of your eyes. That's where the car hit you. Uh, John recalled that when he identified the body of Jacqueline, her head was bandaged around the eyes. Jillian once pointed to Jennifer's forehead birthmark and said, that's the mark Jennifer got when she fell on a bucket. The twins displayed uh, many behaviors that were similar to those of their deceased sisters, um, which I guess really isn't that unusual because they came from the same parents right. and that could very easily be explained. But the big thing is that the twins had uh, this very strange phobia related to cars. Their mother noticed that uh, they were always extremely careful, overly so, when they got anywhere near a car. Not just a busy street, but, you know, a parking lot. Mm -hmm. And that if a car started up nearby, it would startle them. On one occasion, a car engine had started near them uh, in an enclosed alleyway. And their father observed the girls both cringing in terror, clinging to each other and crying, the car, the car, it's coming for us. I wonder, like, I mean, from my perspective, this dad has always had this idea. There's obviously some big feelings there. And I wonder... 
about um, was his concern that they were going to be hit by a car? Was his fear about them being around cars kind of taken on by them? Because obviously as a parent, mm. you know, you've had some kids killed by a car. You're going to be like, whoa, watch out for that car. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's a, that's an excellent point. And that is something that uh, people have brought up in studies. Sure. They've said, yeah, that it could very well that he is uh, transposing his fear on to them. Sure. On the other hand, it doesn't explain why the mother who didn't believe in that, mm-hmm. in fact, she hated that idea, would come in and see them, you know, pretending that they had just been in a horrible car accident and cradling the head. And I know. mean, I played games as a kid, you know, That's a lot true. of them involved dying in car accidents. Really? A lot of them involved dying in car accidents. The twins had a lot of memories, it seemed, of their past life. They both wanted to wear the same types of clothes that the their dead sisters had worn mm-hmm. unprompted. They would actually go and find clothes in the closet that had belonged to them. And even though they didn't fit because they were much older, they would play dress up and they would always choose the clothing corresponding with the sister that they were supposedly the reincarnation of all the time. It wasn't like they fought over it, like a lot of kids would do. It's like, oh, here's yours, here's mine. That was always the case. If they they didn't like a meal that their mother had made them, they would say things like, oh, this tastes like the awful food that we had at school. And the dead daughters were always complaining about the school cafeteria food. Mm -hmm. Again, I guess that's not that unusual. It's really not. But but the fact that uh, they seem to know this... It's kind of odd. Sure. As the twins grew older, their memories faded. And that is a common thing. Right. When, when I had interviewed uh, Kathy Bird, who wrote the book, The Boy Who Knew Too Much, about her son, who, who believes he's the reincarnation of baseball legend Lou Gehrig, that was the pattern with him, too. The older he got, the more he forgot about that. When these children are younger, that's when their memories seem to be more acute. Mm-hmm. One of the people who researched this case soon after it had happened went back and talked to one of the twins uh, in, I guess it was the mid 80s or something. And she doesn't remember any of it, doesn't remember any of it, just what people have told her. But again, she was really young. How many of us remember when we were two, three years old? Well, just you, you freak. I do remember when I was two. It scares people. (laughs) Because it's creepy. (laughs) We lived in an apartment in uh, Norway, Maine, when I was two years old. And I can tell my dad to this day, I can describe the apartment. I can tell him what, uh, what the wallpaper looked like. I can tell him what bedroom I slept in. I can describe it perfectly. I, can, I, can, I remember incidents about a pet monkey getting loose. One of our neighbors had a pet monkey. And I remember going out into the backyard and helping find this pet monkey. I was two. You know, weird things like that. I'm sure you were very helpful. That was very, very helpful as a two-year-old monkey finder. My mom had a monkey when I was a kid. Scoochie. Nope, Scoochie was the raccoon. Your mom rehabbed animals, so your your house was full of, like, deer and wildlife and Mm. ducks and geese, and you actually had a honey badger that slept in your bed. I never once had a honey badger. But it would have been cool. Yeah. Violent, but cool. (laughs) So, yeah, that's the story of the Pollock twins. That's, that's pretty interesting, for it's, sure. It's considered to be one of the best examples of children remembering past lives mm. that has been researched. Well, like we've talked about on, on many occasions, you know, I tend to be more skeptical about things than, than you are. Yeah, but, people um, on social media call you scully. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it makes sense because you are a fox. Ooh. Mm-hmm. What? Um, we both agree that if you decide that you know everything, then you can pretty much be sure that you know nothing. Right. So uh, I try to be open-minded to things and, you know, I may not buy into it, mm-hmm. but I'm never going to say like, well, that's not true. Yeah. No. Well, so, again, yeah, we, there's no way any of us can right. ever, ever know everything. Right. And even if you don't believe in something personally, you have to at least allow for the possibility that it might be true. And allow people to have their feelings. You know, there are some times where, let's say, a distraught father makes shit up because he's sad about his dead kids. Right. And, you know, you don't get in his face and be like, let him have that. I mean, as long as it's not damaging the children and, you know, you have to be very aware of that. And I would imagine that that would be weird as long as the kids were allowed to just kind of live their lives and they observed it from a way you know if it doesn't hurt anyone well that's that's kind of really the underlying theme of this podcast and has been from from the beginning doesn't matter what you believe doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter what you are where where you're you're from from, what what, you did as as long long as you you love me bsb forever i wish i hadn't done that part yeah. now we'll cut that out no we won't um so yeah but seriously none of that stuff matters as long as you're kind to right. other people and if you are kind to other people you are welcome here you are part of our freak family it does not matter it's like i always say to the youngins in the family uh you, you know when they're arguing about who's better at what mm-hmm. uh, you know my saying is uh it's great to be good at things but the most important thing to be good at is kindness that's true hush your mouth Is it time to feed the dogs? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We got to wrap this up. Don't forget the live show in Nashville, February 27th. Tickets on sale now at theboxofoddities.com. Also find us on the social meds. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Goodreads. The Box of Oddities happens two times a week. It explodes out of the inner crust of the earth and trickles down the sides of a... I don't know how you do that. I don't. I don't. I don't have one for today. It it, it bursts out. Okay, uh, the box of oddities bursts out of your belly and consumes your face. Sometimes. It, well, I'm just gonna say this. We'll see you on Thursday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those I report to to beseech you for assistance. The Box of Oddities is free. We ask but one thing of you. To provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2018. All rights reserved. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast. 
a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.